live from the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, the New York legislature approved a new set of congressional maps Wednesday for the state's 26 congressional seats, including several that will be among the country's most competitive this November. And Pennsylvania is a critical battleground state in the general election. We'll get updates from Albany and locally from Wayne County. Ever wonder whether you should go to the ER or urgent care? Knowing the difference between an urgent care center and a hospital emergency room can make a huge difference, especially if you have a medical emergency. We'll tell you more. Plus, New Paltz remembers the first same-sex weddings 20 years later. And it's freezing again today, if you haven't noticed. And while we all need to bundle up, our pets need attention, too, from the extreme winter weather. Reporter Laying Tang has some winter tips. And culture reporter Valerie Manzi has an interview with Hovey Brook. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden and former President Donald Trump will both visit the southern U.S. border today in Texas. Their dueling visits reflect the significance of the border issue in 2024. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on how Democrats hope this will play out. The rare visit by the president reflects a new offensive approach Biden is taking on one of his greatest political liabilities. Evan Roth Smith, a Democratic pollster for the political strategy group Blueprint, says the trip is an opportunity to counter the narrative that Democrats are soft on immigration and attack House Republicans for blocking a bipartisan agreement at Trump's urging that would have tightened rules for asylum and given more money to hire more border agents. The politics of it are fantastic for Democrats, uh, and they're horrible for Republicans, and they're personally difficult for Donald Trump because he's the one who tanked this deal. Biden says Trump torpedoed the deal in order to score political points. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. Former President Donald Trump will go to Eagle Pass, Texas, to see border conditions. He is claiming that he is the one who finally got President Biden to visit the border. The White House is claiming that its visit today had been in the making for some time and that President Biden has previously been to the border during his presidency. Texas officials say the Smokehouse Creek wildfire is still burning out of control in the panhandle north of Amarillo. It's burned more than 1,300 square miles. It's only 3 percent contained. The town of Canadian, Texas, has been badly affected. Town resident Richard Murray lost his home and his pets to the flames. It was a, it's still emotional. It, it's, it's, this is our life. I mean, we've been here for 50 years, and it's, it's, it's pretty tough. One woman has been killed in the wildfire. The National Weather Service has posted a winter weather advisory for the region this morning. Some parts of the panhandle could get up to an inch of snow today. Stocks opened higher this morning as the Commerce Department reported lower annual inflation last month. NPR Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average rose about 46 points in early trading. The Commerce Department's inflation yardstick, which is closely watched by the Federal Reserve, shows prices in January were up 2.4 percent from a year ago. That's a slightly smaller annual increase than the month before. Prices rose three-tenths of a percent between December and January, though, which is an acceleration from the previous month. The Fed wants more evidence of cooling inflation before it starts cutting interest rates. Personal income jumped by 1 percent in January, boosted in part by Social Security's annual cost-of-living increase. Personal spending, meanwhile, rose just two-tenths of a percent, not enough to keep pace with inflation. Spending on services was up last month, while spending on goods declined. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. It's NPR. 
The health ministry in Gaza says more than 30,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli strikes since the war started last October. That's when Hamas militants attacked Israel, and Israeli officials say at least 1,200 people then were killed. There was a new mass casualty incident today. More than 100 Palestinians were killed as they gathered for humanitarian aid. An Israeli official says a crowd approached Israeli forces who were escorting aid trucks in a threatening manner, and they responded with live fire. A proposed security law in Hong Kong is attracting widespread criticism in the U.S. and the United Kingdom. But China is defending the proposed law and says its critics were, quote, smearing China. NPR's Emily Fang has more. The proposed law is being crafted under Article 23 of Hong Kong's constitution, which calls for national security legislation. Efforts to write that law were shelved in 2003 after mass protests. But now authorities are poised to finally pass broad language that would target espionage, external interference from foreign governments, and sabotage, among other crimes. The U.S. State Department says it's worried about the future law and its impact on U.S. citizens and companies in Hong Kong. The U.K.'s foreign secretary says the language on state secrets will, quote, inhibit freedom of speech. China says these comments were, quote, unfounded. And Hong Kong's Security Bureau says fewer than 1% of public comments submitted to them about the proposed law were negative. Emily Fang, NPR News. And I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. The New York State Legislature Wednesday finalized new congressional maps for the 2024 races. Governor Kathy Hochul is expected to sign the bill, and if the lines avoid any new legal hiccups, that could bring a conclusion to a drawn-out redistricting process in the U.S. House battleground state that started over four years ago. From the New York Public News Network, here's Karen DeWitt in Albany. With little debate, the lines drawn by Democrats who lead both the Senate and Assembly were approved, with a handful of Republican minority party lawmakers also voting yes. Announce the results. Ayes 115, no's 33. The bill is passed. The vote comes two days after Democrats rejected district lines recommended by a bipartisan redistricting commission. Republicans accuse Democrats of ignoring the state's constitution. It requires the commission, known as the Independent Redistricting Commission, or IRC, to draw the maps. But Democratic Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie says the constitution also allows lawmakers to alter the maps if they believe they need to. I think that sometimes even the media forgets that the legislature still has a role. We don't have to just pass whatever the IRC passed doesn't mean that whatever the IRC passed means it's, uh, it's perfect and would not have been open to a lawsuit on its own. And so I would hope that people forget that the Constitution does leave it with the legislature to make the final say on lines. The revised lines are marginally more favorable to some Democratic incumbents and could present a slightly tougher challenge to some Republican Congress members who are seeking re-election. Governor Kathy Hochul, who issued a message of necessity to accelerate the voting, says she intends to expedite her review of the maps before deciding whether to sign the legislation. But she says she won't be drawn into the political arguments surrounding the lines. But as with every bill, 
I look at it when it's completed. I make my determination, and I'm not going to pass judgment on the process thus far. I have heard from a lot of people that it is an improvement from the point of view of one party and others. Uh, I'm not here to weigh in on the on the political dynamic involved here. I've said I will not. Legal challenges to the new congressional district lines were anticipated, but so far no Republicans have said they intend to file a lawsuit. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network. Jeffrey Weiss, a professor at New York Law School and an expert on the state's redistricting, told RollCall.com that the new map may end up netting Democrats one congressional seat over the current map used in the 2022 elections. That's when Republicans gained four seats and control of 11 of the state's 26 seats. The seats currently held by Republican Representative Mark Molinaro and Brandon Williams, the 19th and 22nd districts, respectively, may become more Democratic in the fall, Weiss said. Now, primary elections are coming up in Wayne County and all of Pennsylvania on Tuesday, April 23rd. Along with selecting nominees for president, U.S. senator, and several key state offices, there will be a special election in the 139th Legislative District following the resignation of State Representative Joseph Adams in early February. That means voters in those precincts will see that race appear twice on their ballots. Here with all the details is Mickey Yusufs from Wayne County. Good morning, Mickey. Good morning, Tim. Great to be with you. Thanks for being here, and thanks for helping us uh, clear up some of the the key dates in the election in Pennsylvania, which is a key battleground state in the general election. But there are uh, a lots of lots of things coming up, including that hundred and thirty ninth legislative district. We'll get to that. Yeah. But let's run through the key dates that are coming up regarding the primary election, which comes up first in April. Right. Correct. So the April primary is the 23rd. Your last day to register to vote or to change your party affiliation is April 8th. The uh, last day for you to apply for a mail-in or civilian absentee ballot is April 16th. And then those need to be, if you do get an absentee or or a mail-in ballot, those need to be returned or mailed in and received by our Bureau of Elections by 8 p.m. on April 23rd, general primary day. Okay. Polls open on the 23rd at 7 a.m., and they are open until 8 p.m., after which we can actually start counting the ballots. All right. So those are the key dates, and those are up at waynecountypa.gov. Now, let's talk about that special election. Uh, State Representative Joe Adams, who is a Republican that uh, represented the 139th District, which includes Pike and Wayne Counties, announced earlier this month he's resigning from his position representing the district, uh, which means there has to be a, uh, a special election. So how does that work? Okay, so this is where things start to get a little bit complicated. <laughs> yeah. So the one hundred in Wayne County, the 139th district includes Cherry Ridge Township, Dreher, Hollyborough, Lake, Lehigh, Palmyra, Pawpack, Salem, South Canaan, and Sterling Townships. In those townships, you will see a special election that will include both a Republican and a Democrat. We do not know who they are at this time because those nomination papers are, won't, are not required to be finally, finally um, submitted until this Monday. So those names that will actually appear on that ballot won't be known until this coming Tuesday. But all voters, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, whether you get a Republican or a Democratic ballot, you will have you will see the other party only under the special election. 
this is the person you're choosing to fill out the rest of, of the term that Joe Adams was serving currently. That expires on, on November 30th of 2024. Okay. Then later on, now, so this is where it starts to get complicated. Yeah. <laughs> At this, he had early, before he actually resigned, he had announced that he would not be running for re-election. So the regular nominating process already began for that election. So there are names that are on the ballot for Republican and Democrat to seek election to that full term that begins on December 1st of 2024. That's why this particular race in those 10 districts that I talked about, we'll see two different opportunities to vote for someone in the 139th district. One will be the special election that will include a Republican and Democrat, regardless of what party you're voting for. And the second one will only show the candidate or candidates who are in your party. So one is an election to office for the remainder of this almost this year, December 1st. In current term. The other is an election for the person who will be nominated that you will choose to take up the, to take on the following term later this year. Okay. It's complicated, it's I a, know. It's a little complicated because they do they do overlap a little bit. Now, just yeah. again, can you remind folks, so is that happening at the same time as the primary election on April 23rd? Correct. Okay. So on the on the on the April twenty third, yeah, I got just as confused. On the April twenty third ballot, folks in Cherry Ridge, Dreher, Hawley, Lake Lehigh, Palmyra, Pawpack, Salem, South Canaan, and Sterling will see the one hundred and thirty ninth legislative district on their ballot twice. Once in the traditional way of choosing a nominee to be that would go onto the ballot in November. That will only show either a Republican, if you get a Republican ballot, or a Democrat, if you get a Democratic ballot. Now, if you will also see on your ballot a second election, if you will. And this is an actual election to serve out the term from basically Election Day to the 30th of November of this year. And those two candidates are actually nominated by their parties. So the, the Wayne County Republican Party and the Wayne County or the Wayne County Democratic Party are both putting forward a candidate, which we will know next week. And we and the voters will be choosing between those two. That's the special election, and it will be marked as such on your ballot. How do third party and independent voters participate in this special election? Well, they would need to if they if they get an absentee ballot or a um a mail-in ballot, they would automatically receive the special ballot for the special election. If you want if you are register if you don't get a mail-in or absentee ballot, you would need to go to your polling location during the primary and you would receive the special ballot that would only include this one election question, what who is to replace Joe Adams for from that election until the 30th of November of this year. And then so for the next legislative term that starts in the 139th district for that state Senate seat, um, are those those nominees are known, right? Because he had previously Correct. announced that. So could, do you know who those nominees are? I do have that information here. If I can get okay. to my 
If you can give me one second. One second. Yeah. We're um, talking to Mickey Yuzips from Wayne County about uh, all of the election news uh, in Pennsylvania uh, for the primary election, which is coming up April 23rd. Not only will voters be selecting nominees for president, U.S. Senator, senator and s- several key state offices, there's this special election for the 139th Legislative District following the resignation of State Representative Joe Adams in early February. Okay, so I do have the names on the ballot for the regular, this is the regular start of the new term, December 1, 2024. For the Republicans, it says Robin Schooley Skibber of Pike County. And then in Wayne County, it is, um, there it is, Jeff Olsimer of Wayne County and Matthew Contreras of Pike County. Okay. Uh, and again, that's for the next term beginning December 1st. Uh, and if folks have questions, which I'm sure they will, they can go to oh, yeah. uh, WayneCountyPA.gov. Uh, I know the Board of Elections there is, is happy to answer any questions. Um, what else is on the April ballot that people should know about, Mickey? Well, I'm sure everybody knows it's presidential nomination time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so obviously the President of the United States, U.S. Senator, um, Attorney General, our Auditor General, and State Treasurer are also up for re-election along with the um our eighth congressional district is um ha- is up for election there is also uh Jonathan Fritz in the 111th district is running again and i believe he's running unopposed according to my documents here and um we also have and then the parties are choosing their delegates to conventions and things like that both the democrats and the republicans so, yeah, it's pretty complicated. If you do have questions, you can obviously reach out to the Bureau of Elections. If you go to WayneCountyPA.gov, and right on the homepage, you'll find a link to the Bureau of Elections. Yeah, a little com- a little complicated, but doesn't mean that should prevent you from voting. It means you should investigate a little bit further and, and know what you're, what you're and, going to, into. Absolutely. And as we get closer, we will have sa- sample ballots for every municipality that will be posted online. So you'll actually be able to go in and look at it. And figure out, okay, this is the part where I'm voting for now. This is the part where I'm voting for later this year. And we have until April 23rd to digest all of this. So we'll definitely have you or somebody from the Board of, elect- of Elections back yes. to remind folks about everything that's going on in, in Wayne Absolutely. County and Pennsylvania. All right, Mickey, yeah. hey, thanks for st- stepping in here. Wayne, Mickey Usips uh, from Wayne County uh, talking to us today about uh, the uh, primary elections coming up in Wayne County and all of Pennsylvania, plus that special election in the 139th Legislative District, which includes Pike and Wayne. Uh, more information, waynecountypa.gov. Mickey, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll take we'll take a break, and uh, when we come back, um, have you ever wondered whether uh, you should go to the ER or urgent care if you're not feeling great? or have a medical emergency, we're going to try to help uh, sort that out after this break. This is Radio Chatskill. Hi there. This is Brian, host of The Secret Show. Friday nights at 9. I'll be playing a mix of indie, alternative, college, rock, and pop. Some new music and some old classics. That's The Secret Show. Friday nights at 9. Only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. Later today on This American Life. I don't know what kind of family meetings they have in your family, but in this one, the dad tells his kids we're going to be famous. And when we go places, people are going to want pictures. So maybe you're walking with me and somebody will take a picture of us. 
Like we don't know how that, how that. <laughs> we don't know exactly what that's gonna be like, right? The one important thing to know before your family gets famous later today. Saturday at six on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. All too often, illness or injury appears out of the blue. You wake up in the middle of the night with uh, intense abdominal pain, stumble while carrying groceries up a flight of stairs and can't put weight on your swollen ankle, or maybe your baby spikes a high fever on the weekend. When these situations occur, we're often faced with uncertainty about where to go for care, especially if the symptoms seem severe and our regular doctor's office is closed. Well, the answer is not always simple. Knowing the difference between an urgent care center and a hospital emergency room can make a huge difference, especially if you have a medical emergency. Radio Catskills' Patricia Ravio spoke to Dr. Rena Patel, medical director for Garnet Health Urgent Care, about how to tell when to visit either an urgent care center or the ER. We should note that Garnet Health is a financial supporter of WJFF. Dr. Rena Patel, Medical Director for Garnett Health Urgent Care. Welcome to the program. So this is a question I have personally because I always, with a young child, wondering when I should go to the ER, when I should go to urgent care. So let's talk about what are the key differences between the types of the care provided at emergency room and at an urgent care facility? That's a great question. Hi, and thank you for having me. ERs are usually for potentially life-threatening illnesses, exactly what you would think, an emergent or emergency-type scenario, and conditions that need treatment immediately, right away, that are more moderate to severe. Urgent cares are usually for non-life-threatening illnesses that are not necessarily emergent care. They need care, but not right away. It's not life-threatening. Urgent care clinics are same-day clinics that handle a variety of medical problems that need to be treated, but exactly, they're not a true emergency type of scenario. So if you give us some examples on um, when someone should choose the emergency room over the urgent care, if you want to give a, I'll give you an example of someone who has a peanut allergy and also they're seeing a a reaction. Um, Should they go to the urgent care or should they go to the emergency room? That's a great question. And actually, the answer is not always super simple because you can have varying types of reactions to a peanut allergy. If it's life-threatening and you found yourself having to use your EpiPen, we would recommend you go to the emergency room. If you're having difficulty breathing or you cannot breathe, emergency room. If you're having any type of mild reaction that could be like a rash or things are getting started and you feel like you may have time and milder symptoms, you can present to an to an urgent care. But if it's life-threatening with the peanut reaction, then it's going to be the emergency room for sure. Specifically, when we talk about the emergency room, we're thinking about things where cardiac-type chest pain, severe onset abdominal issues, someone's not breathing or they're changing color because they're having difficulty breathing or not breathing, they injured a bone and the bone may be sticking out of their skin, uncontrollable bleeding, seizures, severe burns, and severe cuts, things like that. Right. So so, so what are sort of conditions that you treated at an urgent care facility? Let's say, you know, like you have an ongoing cough and it's, it's not going away. You have the sniffles or there's a lot of drainage coming out from your nose. I'm assuming maybe those are some of the symptoms that would warrant a visit to the urgent care versus a visit to the emergency room. 
You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Something that has been going on maybe for a little bit and is stable, definitely your coughs, your congestion, your sinuses issues, your sore throats. But along with that, also minor falls, cuts, scrapes, earaches as well, fevers, minor burns even we can see in the urgent care, muscular aches and pains we see, we'll see rashes. And of course, you can't forget right now, COVID, flu and RSV. A lot of that. I recently had a visit to the urgent care with my daughter. Um, and the first thing they do this test is for RSV, COVID and the flu. I hope you had a good visit. We, had, we did. Thankfully, everything came, came back negative. So, right. so I want to, because this is, I'm curious about how choosing an ER and urgent care impact the, the patient outcomes and definitely the healthcare costs, because those are really two different costs there when you visit the ER versus the urgent care. Yeah, typically the urgent care is going to be more cost effective when we compare it to the ER and it's used appropriately, of course. Also, non-emergent concerns that report to the ER is will attribute to longer wait times and crowded waiting rooms and, of course, a, a potentially larger bill for the patient. As urgent cares, we help free up waiting rooms in the ER for more serious cases. So. If someone is at home deciding maybe whether she goes to the ER, whether she goes to the emergency room, what advice do you have for someone who's uncertain about where to seek care for their medical issue? This is a great question. You always want to reach out to your primary care provider or their office first for some advice if time permits. If you cannot get in contact with them, you can call another medical office or provider that you are you have a relationship with. You can call the urgent care where you are trying to go. But if you cannot reach anybody, you just go with your gut. Don't delay. Now, you're the medical director for Garnett Health Urgent Care. What are some of the common misconceptions that about urgent care centers and emergency rooms that you think might need clarification? I think one important thing is not all urgent cares are created equal. There are things that one urgent care may do that another urgent care may not do. So you really want to specifically whatever location you're going to, you may want to pull up their website or give them a call ahead of time if you are looking for something specific or want to know if a service is provided. The other thing about emergency rooms, which I think is important, is they're not first come first serve basis. I hear this a lot from patients. They're based on acuity. So if you have a lower acuity complaint that could have been better suited for the urgent care, you may wait a very long time for people coming in after you that need to be seen first. Another important thing to say is urgent cares are not a replacement for your primary care doctor. They, we are a great resource when you can't get in with your regular doctor, but we shouldn't replace your regular doctor. Dr. Patel, uh, before we go, is there anything else that we have not touched on that you want folks to know about? Um, I think the last few things are the most important, to be honest. But if you're ever in doubt, I think calling and just asking the questions are the most important. And if it's after hours and you're very concerned, of course, the emergency room is always going to be there. But if it is something that can wait, the urgent care is always there for you. We were talking to Dr. Patel, medical director for Garnet Health Urgent Care letting us know when to go to the emergency room and when to go to urgent care. Thank you so much, doctor, for joining us on the program. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. In Liberty, I'm Patricio Robayo for Radio Catskill. Good to know. Uh, and now freezing temperatures are back. If you haven't noticed, it's uh, 25 here in Liberty. It feels like 18. 
Temperatures going down to 21 tonight uh, with these freezing temperatures and some of the snowstorms that we had earlier this month. Well, we all took measures to shield ourselves uh, from these harsh winter conditions, of course, but the well-being of our pets in these extreme weather events it raises that important question. What about our furry friends? Radio Catskills Laying Tang spoke to Sharon Hawa, the Senior Manager for Emergency Services from Best Friends Animal Society, about how we can protect our pets at home and those in shelters from this extreme winter weather. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you so much, Liang. Nice to be here. Could you tell me like how many years you have worked in this field? Well, I've been in the field of emergency services for almost 25 years. I've been with Best Friends for five years now, focused on different types of disasters throughout the country that impact people and their pets, as well as animals in shelters that are looking for homes. What kind of problems will have on pets during a winter storm? Yeah, a lot of times, especially if you have a house with some property, some animals are often kept outside. Animals love being outside, exploring. And so when it gets colder, people tend to forget that maybe the animal, because it's furry or has more hair on its body, can also get cold. And so when temperatures go below the freezing point, animals are susceptible to frostbite and hypothermia, especially on their nose and on their paw pads where there's that leathery bit. Animals that are kept outside should be brought indoors, maybe have some access to some heat. You have a fireplace or a a space heater or even a warm, dry blanket that they can cuddle under. And if animals aren't able to come inside, then maybe consider setting up some type of outdoor shelter for them, something off the ground because the ground is where it collects the most moisture and so therefore it'll be more freezing. So you want to make sure that at least you have straw. Straw tends to repel moisture. You don't want to use blankets or towels because blankets and towels do become wet and that then takes away the heat from the animal. It absorbs the heat from the animal and it tends to make the animal freeze faster. Those types of tips, I think, will go a long way in making sure that your animal has, you know, the outdoor time that it needs, but also indoor time to get warm again. I just pop up another question in my mind because I know like dogs, they love going out. And I feel like if they don't go out for several days, they will feel depressed. So I'm wondering, like in a snowstorm, usually it will last for almost a week. So how do you deal with this situation? Yeah, you're absolutely right. My dog loves the snow. So it's not a matter of keeping them inside. It's just a matter of limiting how much time outside they spend. So 15 minutes of sniffing for a dog is like walking a mile. So you definitely want to be able to walk your dog and give them that enrichment. But just be mindful of not only the snow and the cold ground, but also a lot of people tend to put contaminants on the ground like salt and de-icers. If your dog isn't wearing a coat and booties that, you know, you are cleaning your dog's paws when you get home because those types of contaminants that are on your dog can be very harmful for them, especially if they get in between their toes or their digits on their paws. So just take a towel and wipe them down at the end of the day. But I know for dogs that are very high energy, You might want to consider doing other types of enrichment if you do have to stay inside a lot more often than you would normally. You might want to consider getting different types of puzzles. I play a game with my dog called Trace, 
where I just drop little treats everywhere and I have her trace where those treats are and she goes all around the house and she loves it. You know, it's a way for us to bond and it also is a way for her to get a little bit of that enrichment and get a little tired too. So that's another way of giving that enrichment to your animals. Many animals in the shelter, they usually don't have access to the heat. So under that circumstance, what kind of suggestions you will have for these animals? Yeah, for for shelters, I think a lot of them do a lot of work to try and make sure that their animals are comfortable. So if it's an indoor shelter where a lot of their animals are indoors, they do tend to have heat or they'll have space heaters that they'll set up. And if it's a shelter that has outdoor runs for their shelter pets, they do tend to rotate them so that they do have indoor time and outdoor time. They'll put beds that are off the ground so that they're not going to be on the ground when they do tend to lay down. But for your listeners, I think what would be great is reaching out to your shelters and seeing what they might need to help support the animals in their shelters. Oftentimes, it's a lack of funding that enables them to get all of the materials and equipment that they need. And a lot of shelters also have wish lists on different websites like Amazon and see if there are any items that they need. Or at the very least, you can give them a call and see if there's something that you might be able to donate for them, because I think that goes a very long way in making the animal at the shelter more comfortable. Right, great. I'm also curious, like in the winter time, what kind of food do you recommend for our pets? I don't see any changes to food. It's just a matter of giving them something that they enjoy that's also good for their health and not giving them too much of it. Because again, if you are spending more time indoors, then that means they're not getting the exercise that they need. So don't over snack them. I know that we tend to do that as humans. So you definitely don't want to do that with your animals. Or if you have stairs in your house, doing an enrichment game that can have the animal walking up and down the stairs is a good exercise for them. So just, you know, Balancing out how much food you give them with how much exercise they're getting. I think you really provide many useful suggestions and it gives us new insights for the pets, like how we walk them in the snowstorm and how we take care of them. What do you want to add to this conversation in the end? Well, I do want to just add that there are some animals that live outside that don't have homes and they aren't in shelters. A lot of them often tend to be cats, not even just the wildlife. During these cold weather snaps, sometimes animals try to find some kind of heat or warmth in your cars. So either sitting in your wheels or maybe even under your hood. So before you start your car, just a reminder, knock on the hood of your car just to make sure that any animal that may be sleeping there overnight escapes before you turn the engine on. We have always hear about animals that get hurt while the engines are starting, kittens and baby animals that tend to crawl in there to find some warmth. So just a reminder that, you know, there are animals at home and then there are animals at the shelters, but there are also some animals that live outside that also need our help. So any type of help that we can offer that would be wonderful as well. And and just another reminder to your listeners that fostering and adoption saves lives. So please reach out to your shelter and see how you could help with that. Thank you so much. In Liberty, I'm Laying Town for Radio Caskill. And we'll take a break. When we come back, a look back to 2004 when the village of New Paltz was thrust into international focus when its mayor defied the law to make a statement. 
Then Mayor Jason West garnered international attention when he married 25 same-sex couples years before those marriages were allowed in New York and before the Defense of Marriage Act was found unconstitutional. We come back, New Paltz, remembering for the first same-sex weddings 20 years later. This is Radio Chatskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Farm Arts Collective, located on Willow West Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Farm Arts Collective's programs intersect the practices of farming, performance, food, and ecology. FarmArtsCollective.org From the Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan, a publicly supported philanthropic institution, CFOSNY.org, and from listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, independent, grassroots, global news. Our reporting includes breaking daily news headlines and in-depth interviews with people on the front lines of the world's most pressing issues. People speaking for themselves, providing unique and sometimes provocative perspectives on global events. Democracy Now!, weekdays at noon, right here on Radio Catskill. I'm Matt Hurtado. Join me on a journey where pixels meet melodies and controllers become conductors. This is Virtual Soundscapes, the show that transports you to the sonic realms of video game magic. In this journey, we'll uncover the hidden treasures of video game soundtracks from the classics to modern day and speak with industry veterans. Join me every Thursday night at 10 p.m. only on Radio Catskill. Listen locally. You're listening to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. 20 years ago this week, 25 LGBTQ plus couples donned their best coats and met at a park in New Paltz to do two things, get married and break the law. The act of civil disobedience tested New York's marriage laws at a time when same-sex marriage was hotly debated, but still largely illegal in the United States. On Sunday, friends and advocates reunited to remember those that made it all possible and for one couple to get married again. WAMC Hudson Valley Bureau Chief Jesse King was there. In February 2004, Jay Blotcher and Brooke Garrett were determined to be married, and they were willing to shop around for laws in different states to do it. Massachusetts became the first state to recognize gay marriage that year, but not until May. And there was a significant effort by some states, endorsed by then-President George W. Bush, to pass a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage nationwide. For many, there was a fear that the door could close before it had even opened. So when Blotcher, a seasoned gay rights and AIDS activist, caught wind through his local food co-op that the mayor of New Paltz was planning to marry LGBTQ plus couples at Peace Park, he jumped at the opportunity. I looked at Brooke, I said, I guess we're getting married tomorrow. The mass wedding on February 27th ended up drawing international attention and hundreds of onlookers, including some protesters, but mostly supporters. What was intended to be a four-couple event, including Blotcher and Garrett, grew to more than two dozen ceremonies as couples continued to emerge from the crowd be married by Mayor Jason West, more than seven years before state lawmakers narrowly voted to legalize same-sex marriage. It was uh, just exhilarating to be part of it, to have the support of all these strangers and to know that the world's eyes were upon us. 
Brooke, would you please repeat after me? I, Brooke. I, Brooke. Take you, Jay. Take you, Jay. To be my lawfully wedded husband. To be my lawfully wedded husband. And then On Sunday, Blotcher and Garrett renewed their vows with the same ceremony and efficient, but this time without the threat of legal repercussions. I'd be wedded. I'd be wedded. By the power not currently vested in me, but. <laughs> The so-called Love is Love drag brunch, organized with the New Paltz Pride Coalition, served as part ceremony, part fundraiser for a new LGBTQ plus center in town. And West, who is now the director of sustainability for the city of Albany, was the guest of honor. 20 years ago, though, he was just a 26-year-old first-term mayor intent on making a mark. West tells WAMC the idea for the wedding was already in his brain while running for mayor. At the time, he was being lobbied by farmer and activist William Van Rostenberg, who was himself hoping to marry his partner of several years. West says he was also incensed by Bush's vocal opposition to gay marriage, and he felt like the ongoing debate over whether LGBTQ plus couples should be granted civil unions didn't go far enough. I always thought that was just not good enough. You know, separate but equal has never been a good policy and for civil rights or for this. By hosting the wedding, West didn't actually expect the couple's marriages to be treated as official. They would still need to be approved by the Department of Health to get a license, and that was unlikely. However, the law neither allowed nor forbid West to solemnize same-sex marriages. And due to a loophole in New York's domestic relations law, a couple without a license was still legally married so long as their union was solemnized. Except the person doing the solemnization is guilty of a misdemeanor punishable by a year in jail and a $1,000 fine. So we thought we could just... In the absence of marriage licenses, just solemnize weddings, and according to domestic relations law, they would be married. And I would be going to court to defend myself against multiple misdemeanors. Were you nervous at all on the day of, of how things could go down? Oh, I didn't sleep the night before. It was, I was terrified. So terrified, in fact, that Van Rostenberg says the wedding was nearly called off. A few days before it happened, Jason was afraid to do it for many reasons. He didn't want the taxpayers of New Pulse to pay millions of dollars of legal fees. I um, had the last meeting in his office. I shut the door. He didn't want to do it. I, in, in the hallway next to his office, I just called some press I know and leaked it to the press, and the rest is history. <laughs> so you kind of forced the hand a little bit. Had to. Van Rostenberg and his then-partner, Army Major Jeffrey McGowan, were the first to be married on February 27th. And the day went off without a hitch, at least at first. After the event, West was slapped with 19 misdemeanor charges for solemnizing a marriage without a license. But by this point, West says he was undeterred. The wedding had stirred up so much press that the town now had a wait list of hundreds of couples looking to get married. West felt safe for the pro bono legal team. And he promised to continue marrying couples on a regular basis until the court stepped in with a restraining order, which promptly happened. But when West was knocked down, the local clergy stepped up. West says roughly 300 people got married in the three months after the initial New Paltz event. Ultimately, after a year and a half in court, the charges against West were dropped. It was several years before marriage equality became the law of the land, but New York would beat the Supreme Court to legalization by about four years. West hopes the New Paltz weddings played a role in that. The weddings we did in New Paltz normalized gay couples for a lot of people who maybe don't know gay people personally. It's such a normal thing to get married. And, it, you know, it's, it's such a normal, touching act that it's hard to watch people get married and hold hatred in your heart for it. I think we opened a lot of people's eyes to the fact that civil rights should apply to the gay and lesbian community. And, and that there are rights, there are you know, over a thousand rights with marriage, 
uh, that these folks were being denied, and, and that that's just simply unfair. Welcome to the Love is Love Drag Brunch, everyone! My name is Vila Peculiar, I'm the Harriet Women Show Business in the Hudson Valley. I'm just an Italian with a dream. Uh, welcome gathering for this event. Um, it, it's been the nicest thing I've celebrated in a long time, especially with what's been going on in our media and targeted against our queer community. For attendees at Sunday's Drag Brunch, the anniversary also served as a reminder of how fragile those rights can be. Several states have passed restrictions on the transgender community in recent years, and Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman just signed an executive order banning transgender athletes from competing in women's sports. In his concurring opinion for Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court case that overturned Roe v. Wade in 2022, Justice Clarence Thomas suggested the court should revisit other landmark cases, including the case granting marriage equality. Just last week, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee signed a law allowing public officials to refuse to perform marriages for LGBTQ plus couples. West says he's not sure the New Paltz weddings could have happened so peacefully today. The country is even more divided now than it was in 2004. However, he and Blotcher both say the event stands as an important example of the power of organization and helped foster a vibrant LGBTQ plus community in the Hudson Valley. I think the lessons that we can learn from the New Paltz weddings is that when you see injustice, respond to it, push back against the bullies, because there are good-hearted people out there who want to do the right thing, and you need to connect with them and undo all the awful things that conservatives in this country are hell-bent on doing. Blotcher and Garrett were eventually married for real in California in 2008, and Blotcher helped found the Hudson Valley LGBTQ Center in Kingston. Van Rostenberg and McGowan later divorced, but Van Rostenberg regularly hosts weddings at his farm, Liberty View Farm, in Highland. The New Paltz Pride Coalition estimates Sunday's fundraiser collected more than $12,000 in donations that will go toward establishing a new Pride Center in town. Reporting from New Paltz for WAMC's Hudson Valley Bureau on the campus of Vassar College, I'm Jesse King. Thanks to Jesse for that, and we're able to bring you that story thanks to our partnership with the New York Public News Network. We'll take a break, and when we come back, lots of culture happening this weekend. Culture reporter Valerie Manzi will tell you all about it, including a new literary salon series in Ellenville and a new art exhibition in Livingston Manor. Right after this, this is Radio Chatsko. Last year, over 100,000 people died from drug overdoses driven by fentanyl. And the fastest-growing group is under 19. Fentanyl is the number one cause of overdose in Sullivan County. Whether you're a parent or an educator, you can have the right conversation now to potentially save a kid's life. Protect kids from the dangers of fentanyl. More information and resources at naturalhigh.org. Paid for by Catholic Charities of Orange, Sullivan, and Ulster. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, we've got a show for you that's worth all the tea in China and India. It's a tasting and lesson in all the major styles of Chinese tea, and then the surprising, revolutionary history of India's masala chai. It's coming up on The Splendid Table. The Splendid Table, Sunday morning at 11, on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. 
David Goodwillie is the guest for a new literary salon series launching in Ellenville Saturday. Goodwillie will read from his work, answer questions, and describe his journey in New York's literary world. Culture reporter Valerie Manzi spoke to him. Good morning, David, and welcome to Radio Chatskill. Valerie, thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you and to talk about your upcoming event with Aaron Hicklin, which will take place on March 2nd, that's this Saturday, at 5 p.m. at Everything Nice in Ellenville. And Aaron will be interviewing you about you and your work. So tell us a little bit about what we have to look forward to. Absolutely. First of all, it's a, a brand new store, everything nice, right on the main drag uh, in Ellenville on Canal Street. And um, I live up in uh, Cragsmore, which is a little uh, kind of artistic hamlet on top of the mountain in the uh, Schwangunk Ridge. And so I've watched Ellenville kind of grow for the last eight years into really a, a wonderful, bustling cultural center with the Shadowland Theater and uh, some wonderful restaurants. And everything nice is a bookstore record store that opened last fall and this is their first event Aaron has started a art series there and will be interviewing me about my latest novel which partly takes place in the Catskills and what is the name of that novel it is called Kings County and uh, it takes place in and amongst the music scene of early 2000s uh, Brooklyn and uh, features a, a band of of young Catskills brothers that go down and try their luck in that scene. And um, I've always been interested in writing about the kind of person that moves to a city like New York and, and what, what that drive within them is, and uh, especially if it's of an artistic nature. And I just always wanted to write about the Catskills as well, and it seemed a wonderful way to do both. And uh, it's also kind of an edgy love story that takes place in that time. And very much looking forward to uh, talking about it. I think we're going to talk a bit about literature and music and the uh, many connections between the two. And certainly Aaron knows a lot about both. And I'm really looking forward to it. Yes. And for those who might not be aware, Kings County is also known as Brooklyn. It is indeed. It's the official name of Brooklyn, which um, some sometimes even Brooklynites don't know until you get your first jury summons, and it says the Kings, Kings County Courthouse, and then you learn very quickly. But yeah, it, it, it is the official name of the borough. Okay. I, I knew that because I'm born and raised Brooklyn girl. Right. Perfect. Yes. I, and I live, uh, when I'm not in the Catskills, I'm in uh, Greenpoint, Brooklyn. So uh, I, I love that as well. And you've written a couple of other books. Can you tell us what they are so our listeners can uh, take a look at your work and become familiar with it? Uh, absolutely. My first book was actually a memoir, um, kind of in the, the first golden age of memoirs in the uh, early 2000s. Um, I and on my way to becoming a writer, I had a lot of very strange jobs, as as, as many do. Um, but mine were particularly odd. I was a, a, a drafted to play professional baseball. Uh, I was a private investigator at Kroll Associates, which is the world's largest investigative agency. Uh, I was an expert at Sotheby's Auction House. And all of this kind of I was either not great at or uh, just got kind of uh, tired of and realized I should I should be writing. And so it's. it's that's where my talents lay. And so, uh, of course, I set out to do that and had no idea how to write a novel. But I had had these um, intriguing experiences in my 20s. So I, uh, I wrote a memoir first. and It was kind of my, my MFA, I guess, my way to learn how to write. And that became a memoir called Seemed Like a Good Idea at the Time, which came out in 2006. And then after that, 
I realized I was probably not David Sedaris, and one memoir for a younger person was more than enough. And um, I wrote a novel called American Subversive, which came out in 2010 from Scribner. After that, I started writing investigative pieces for magazines, uh, which I enjoyed a great deal, but always came back to fiction. And my latest was Kings County, uh, which we just were talking about. Yes. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot to talk about and you've, you've read, uh, you've led a very interesting life. You've lived in a number of different places. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of stories. I, I hope so. And I think Aaron's a, such an interesting person and such a big part of the Catskills and the book community up here. And I'm really excited to talk with him about it. Also, just to have people come to Ellenville. It's a wonderful, wonderful little town. And um, I've kind of you know, really fallen in love with it. Yes. Yeah, so that's our own Aaron Hicklin, who has a program here on WJFF and owns One Grand Books in Narrowsford. So he will be hosting this event at Everything Nice, Saturday, March 2nd at 5 p.m. in Ellenville. Thank you so much for talking to us about this event. Valerie, thank you so much for having me, and I, uh, I'm looking forward to it and hope to see everyone out there. Okay. And uh, more happening this Saturday, including uh, the uh, new exhibition of work at Catskill Art Space from Hovey Brock, Daniela Dooling, and Valerie Hegarty. It's opening Saturday. And Hovey Brock's Crazy River exhibit is a call for awareness of the environmental de- degradation the artist has witnessed in Frost Valley and the West Branch of the Neversink River in Ulster County. Here again is culture reporter Valerie Manzi. Good morning, Hovey, and welcome to Radio Chatskill. Thank you, Valerie. Good to be here. Yes, and we're here to talk about your exhibit that will be part of a three-person exhibit at the Catskill Art Society in Livingston Manor, which begins on March 2nd and runs through April 27th. That's right. So can you tell us a little bit about what you'll be exhibiting. I've been doing some research on you, so I know there's a lot there. Okay. Uh, Well, great. I'd be happy to tell you what people are going to see when they get to the gallery. I will be showing some paintings um, that I started in 2020 uh, through 2023, and I'll also be showing a couple of banners, so it's going to be an installation with paintings. Uh, the topic is uh, really about climate change. This particular series I call the Crazy River Series. So you'll be seeing abstract paintings, but they will have words or phrases on them that will be part of a general, you might say, thought bubble around climate change. This particular series that I started, the Crazy River Project, was uh, begun in 20... Um, 2017, uh, when it became clear to me that this was something that I had to talk about. Um, And uh, this particular series came out of an experience that I had of extreme weather in the valley that I've known all my life, the West Branch of the Neversink Frost Valley. I experienced two back-to-back storms, one in 2011, which was Irene, and then there was a local storm in 2012, and each one produced a 100-year flood. So you have back-to-back 100-year floods. doesn't happen that often, and with that I realized, you know, that we were really in an era of uh, extreme weather events caused by climate change. So 
that's really what the uh, my my set of paintings is about. Um, I'll also be showing with two excellent artists, so uh, I really think this is going to be a terrific show. And what is the medium of your work that you'll be showing? Sure. So uh, I paint acrylic on panels. I use a technique where I uh, squeeze the paint through a mesh. Uh, the mesh has a template on it with the words. So what you'll get is a superimposition of the word multiple times on one panel, uh, word or words, words or phrases. And that's how the painting comes about. Um, they tend to be quite colorful. I use a lot of different types of pigments, uh, interference colors, reflective colors. And, uh, but it's all, it's all ruminations really about climate change. So um, do they have, does each painting have a theme? Uh, each painting has a phrase or a set of phrases, which um, they, they, they come in different, you might say, topics. There are some topics which are just sort of personal history. There are other topics which deal with the geology of the Catskills itself or uh, general ideas about geology as it relates to climate change. And then there are other uh, paintings that relate to the type of flora and fauna and the ecological challenges that they face. So um, it's kind of a wide angle view of climate change from, you know, the present through my personal history and then through geologic history. So those are really the three buckets. Okay. And that is going to happen. The opening will be on March 2nd, and it runs through April 27th. And then I noted that at the end, the 27th, there will be a symposia on uh, environmental issues. That's correct. We're going to, uh, there's going to be a three-way conversation, a symposium between me, uh, Daniela Dooling, and Valerie Hegarty. Um, all three of us are going to talk about our practices as they relate to climate change. Uh, I'm sure it'll be a fascinating symposium. These are um, two very accomplished artists that I'll be showing with, and uh, they'll have a lot to say about their own practice as it relates to uh, topics uh, around the climate crisis, really. Okay. And we will be interviewing individually each of the other artists, so our listeners uh, will get some idea of what their exhibits will be like. So thank you for coming in. We really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing your work. My pleasure, Valerie. Good to be with you. And uh, anybody who's listening, please come. Uh, it's a wonderful space. And if you haven't been there, I think you'll be surprised. That's right. That's Cass in Livingston Manor. That's correct. Bye. All right. Thanks, Valerie, for that. That's all for this edition of Radio Chatskill. Tomorrow, Sullivan County Government Communications Director Dan Hoost is here. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Works Office Solutions, located right on Main Street in Jeffersonville, New York, a newly renovated pet-friendly office space that rents by the day, week, or month with hot desks, sound-insulated rooms, Wi-Fi, modern amenities, and 24-hour secure access. Online at jeffworksjville.com. And from The Cooperage Project, thecooperageproject.org. And listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. Mixtape's all about eclectic music. 
compiled with love, like an old-school mixtape. I'm Jason Tuga, and every Friday night, it's my aim to bring you something special, a unique mix of music you wouldn't hear anywhere else. You can count on hearing a diverse range of artists, eras, genres, and vibes. The Mixtape, an hour of music assembled by me just for you. Friday night. Friday night at 7 on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Streaming live at WJFFradio.org, you're listening to Radio Catskill. Local news, culture, and NPR. Today's forecast, cloudy uh, and sun, mixed, breezy, much colder, uh, high of 30. Tonight's low 17. Tomorrow, milder with some sunshine, but uh, look out for some ice perhaps late tomorrow night. On the weekend, drizzle on Saturday, cloudy and milder Sunday.